Hey there, Kelly here. Guests on the show share so many great ideas, but how do you start putting them into practice? Well, that's exactly what you'll explore when you sign up for the podcast weekly newsletter. Each week, you'll get three ideas from past guests sent straight to your inbox. You'll explore materials, techniques, tools, concepts, and mindsets in bite-sized pieces so that you can think about them and fold them into your own practice. It's completely free and you get it by signing up at learntopaintpodcast.com slash newsletter. I use my photos or if I'm painting from life, use that as inspiration. And if there's something about it that I don't like or don't feel it's going to contribute to my painting, I either leave it out or I change it. Hello and welcome to the Learn to Paint podcast, the show where we work to answer the question, how do you get better at painting? I'm your host, Kelly Ann Powers, with the voice you just heard and may recognize, Julie Gilbert Pollard. In my conversation with Pollard back in episode 25, I made a huge mistake. I didn't talk to her about water, specifically falling water, in which Pollard has written books, filmed videos, taught classes, water for which the artist is known. So today, we're talking water. In the conversation, we focus on watercolor, but the ideas work across any medium. You'll learn how to simplify the complexity of falling water and get advice on how to approach your reflections and shadows in both still water and moving water. For show notes and to sign up for the newsletter list, head to learntopaintpodcast.com slash podcast slash episode 51. And if you like the show and want to help it live into the future... Head to learntopaintpodcast.com slash support and look for the podcast art club. All right, here we go. Hi, Julie. Welcome to this mini episode. Today we are talking about water. So first off, as an artist, what do you love about painting water? Well, I think everybody is drawn to water. I always have been. And a lot of people are drawn to rocks, too. Rocks and water are so interesting, so appealing, and yet kind of hard to paint. So who doesn't love a challenge? How do you suggest someone who is first starting out, how should they approach learning something like water? You need to get your painting skills under your belt. Of course, you do that while you're studying whatever topic really appeals to you. But water can be kind of tricky. So the better your painting skills, the more it will help you painting a subject that is even more difficult. It's not a simple subject. It has so many aspects to it. And we all see the waterfalls and the streams. And I think we all have this vision. And I've said this in every book and every class probably I've ever taught. Because I think it's just so true. Everybody has a vision. And you see it being done by an instructor, and they've honed their skills to the point where it looks pretty easy, but your skills have to catch up with your vision. Well, then you just mentioned that water is pretty complicated. You have a simplified approach that you teach that helps students sort of wrap their brains around what they see happening in moving water. So could you share with us your simplified anatomy of a creek? If you've taken portrait classes where they show you how to crawl before you can walk, so you find the big shape, they have you oftentimes draw an egg, and then the eyes are halfway between the top and the bottom. The nose is a simple triangle that, you know, (laughs) fits between the eyes and the chin. 
and you put those super simple pieces together and voila, you have a person or an egg that looks like it could be an actual person. So what I've done is to see those complicated shapes in terms of easily identifiable subject. I always have people in class think of a waterfall as the simplified shapes of a formal gown from the waist down as seen from behind. So the waist would be the flat water. I call that the meandering part, part of the stream that has been channeled between whatever is channeling it usually rocks or a bank, something like that. And so the point at which the water is changing direction from more or less horizontal to falling more or less diagonally down, I call that the folds of the skirt. The point of impact, the point at which the falling water hits the uh, bottom, I call that the ruffle edge or the seam between the folds of the skirt and the train. And then the, the white water that's bouncing around where it has been really aerated and becomes gazillion bubbles, I call that the train, that froth at the bottom of the waterfall. And then as that train continues on downstream, the bubbles start to break up, forming holes that you can see through, and the holes in the foam become larger and larger. There are still some small ones, but in general, the size of the holes becomes larger and larger. And it's a lacy appearance, and I call that the lace of the train. What I love about that breakdown is what I hear you saying is that it can be so easy when you look at falling water, and it, there's so many pieces. But what you're saying is like, yes, every waterfall is different. There is uniqueness to them, obviously, but look for these big shapes because those will kind of repeat, generally, waterfall to waterfall. That's exactly right. You know, when you're sitting by the creek, it's moving so fast, it just kind of messes with our mind a little bit. And, but if you stop and think about it, it's going to do the same thing over and over and over again. Obviously, photography really helps with that because you can stop the action. So if you can learn this basic anatomy... You do have to then apply and adapt to whatever real waterfall, real creek you're actually painting. So I have the people in my classes do the study, and I have an example that they can follow that shows two simple photos with the waist, the folds, the train, etc. And then I show them by using either a piece of tracing paper or a piece of clear acetate which we place on top of the photo that we might be looking at and trace it. And so you can see how to apply what we just talked about to the real thing. At this point, we're really in the analyzing part of it. And of course, everybody wants to get their painting skills to the point where a viewer isn't going to look at it and see all the hard work. <laughs> we want the viewer to say, oh my gosh, she just feels it. She just feels it. It just flew right off of her brush. I stress that you really need to analyze and then also learn how to feel it. So one step toward feeling that movement of the water is to imagine a leaf floating down. Just imagine what movement, direction, and pathway that leaf would take as it kind of meanders down through the flat water and then plunges 
and then gets tossed around as it then flows downstream. Often, when I'm drawing it, I kind of let my pencil follow the path that the leaf would take and feel it as I'm drawing it. And when I'm painting it, I also tend to move my brush to the same rhythm and movement of that leaf. And, you know, little by little, using your left brain and your right brain, you know, analyzing and feeling and then applying it and trying to give your own perception of what's happening through your paint, you know, little by little, you do get the feeling and it does start to kind of fall off the brush. But that's not a guarantee. <laughs> you know, it's not a, or a graph, I should say, of continual upward movement. You know, I've been painting for a long time and I'll that graph will move up and it'll be, oh, so satisfying. And then it will plunge. And then the next painting, it will go up. And I'll think, okay, now I got it. And then the next painting, no, I don't got it. My graph line plunges. So, But it's fun. It's just fun and it's so rewarding when, when it does all work out. So it's important to have the analytical part and, and really spend time there. And then there's the paint on paper part. So we're going to walk through each of those parts of the dress and talk about how you would paint those in watercolor. Just sort of general overview. So the first, when you're dealing with paint application for that meandering part at the top of the waist, how do you lay that paint down? Okay, speaking of a very, very simple stream where the meandering part is very flat before it falls, which isn't always the case in a real setting, but that's often a very reflective part of the water. I usually will use for that part a flat brush, uh, using it on its edge to make kind of, not completely horizontal, slightly diagonal strokes, kind of going back and forth. Think of a, a Z shape and letting the water approach the waist in kind of a zigzag form. And then after those brush strokes have sucked into the paper a little bit and enough to stain the paper, then I will use that same flat brush and do a few vertical strokes gently and carefully because you don't want to obliterate all of the diagonal slash horizontal strokes and the vertical really helps give that water a reflective, shiny look. So then as we approach the waist, I'm still using the same brush. I will let the water spill over that edge where the water begins to plunge. Let the water spill over. But I only usually do it on one side and just... It would be kind of like a little triangle of the tip of the flat brush that dips down. And there might be a little curve to that shape as well. And then I usually will stop, let the paint dry, kind of reassess, make sure I know where that waterfall is hitting. And then at the very bottom, in back of the foam that is splashing up in front of the plunging water, I will make sure to make that a little bit darker than the top of the waterfall. So I don't mean dark. I mean a value that's probably um, in the light medium to medium stage so that the bubbling water can come forward. Then I will do a gradated wash from the bottom up to the top. So the top of the waterfall is mostly white paper. 
the bottom has just a little bit of value to push it back. And for both of these, you're working wet on dry. Depends on the painting, but right now I am talking about wet on dry. But in a real painting, you know, I might find an area where it really needs to be wet first. Or maybe there'll be a, you know, a little color already on the paper, and then I'll do a little bit of wet into wet. So it always depends on the situation at hand. And to get that bubbling water, I do negative painting. So the wash that extends from the waist down to that ruffle edge, the bottom of that, I will use a negative splatter technique so that the water then splashes in front. And I use the same technique to paint the rocks around the splashing water. Could you talk us through how you do the negative splatter technique? Well, I use splatter in a variety of ways. If you want a lot of control, you can tap the brush that has the paint in it against another brush. That gives you a little more control. I think the beauty of splatter is really that it is so random. So I only tap it against another brush when I really need that control. More often than not, I will just tap the brush with my forefinger as I'm holding it, that same hand that's holding the brush. Of course, you have to practice this because at first, if your hand is stiff, if you tap a loaded brush with another object, that paint is going to fly up, not down. So once you get the hang of it and you get the feel for it, it's like your whole arm cooperates in that downward movement. And so you're tapping the brush with your forefinger on the downstroke. And that way, then the paint goes down and doesn't fly up into your face. And it sounds like you want the bits of paint that go onto the paper. You're tapping that into both the end of the folding falling, but like you said, negative. Negative painting. Yeah, so it's actually creating shapes that are white below it. Right. Yeah, so in class, a lot of times what I see happen is that we think of the white water as this very positive shape. It's what we're focused on. So people will paint it. If you're doing a painting with transparent watercolor and you want white, you don't paint it. You paint around it. So getting that feel for negative splatter takes a little bit of practice and a little bit of reorganizing of your thoughts because negative painting, even if you're not splattering, it's kind of counterintuitive the way we think about things. We think of painting a flower, painting a rock, until you get into watercolor and understand that we're saving the whites. It can be a little difficult to not paint the white water. And this is where I can see having the anatomy of a creek in your brain can be so helpful because you're not trying to paint all the things and trying to keep it all in mind. Like at this point, you are just painting the section between the dropping, the folds of the dress and the impact ruffle. Like you're not painting the still water at the top and you're not painting the downstream train or lace. You're just focused in this one area and then therefore can focus on a technique that might be new to you, like negative space painting. That's a good point. When I'm painting, all my focus really goes to that one little spot. Now, after a while, you kind of get used to things and your focus can change back and forth but it changes back and forth very quickly so that when you're painting, you are focused on that, that one spot. And I do have exercises that I have people do in classes where they're doing splatter that is not a subject matter. 
So you have to think of splatter as similar to something like, I don't know, archery or <laughs> bowling. That paint is going to leave your brush and travel through the air before it reaches the spot you want it to go. So I tell them, okay, we are going to do target practice. And I have them draw in their sketchbook three targets, two small ones and one large one. So the first target, just a circle within a circle. Now we're going to think of that as a white donut. Keep that in your head. It's a white donut. <laughs> it has to stay white. And then I have them scribble just with a pencil the donut hole and then the surrounding area around the donut going up to the edge of a, a rectangle. So they can get the idea of the shapes and the values and the edges. This is done very quickly. We don't spend hours just doing a scribble. And then we go to the next target, the next white donut, and I have them paint the donut hole, which is one color, and then paint the surrounding area with a dark color. So they're going from crawling to walking, correct? Then the, on the larger target, then we splatter. I show them all the different ways to splatter because you can also just sling paint by not even hitting it. That's really loss of control, which can look really cool in a painting if you have the guts to do it. <laughs> and the idea is to form a splattered edge to a shape. So we do a splattered edge within the donut hole, leaving the edge of that shape splattered. And then we go out to the outside of the donut and have a splattered edge. And then the shape between the edge and the side of the picture plane, that will be more or less solid. Or solid enough so that the white donut really stands out. Working up to it gradually, that technique doesn't interfere, or let's say, let's say the shapes and the values don't interfere as much with your grasping this new technique. Right. What I hear you saying also is don't have the first time you do splatter be midway through your, your water <laughs> painting. Because that might be frustrating. Like, like that might make you feel really frustrated in a way that you don't need to because that's just a learned skill. Well said. Yes. So we've got the splashing up with the negative splatter. So then how do you approach the downstream, which is the train of the dress? Well, I usually use a combination of round brushes and flat brushes and just really look at the picture to see where those holes are actually forming in the picture. On the picture, if I'm painting from a photograph, I will use a pencil to accent those holes to make them a little bit easier to be seen. And so it's kind of a form of exaggeration. Sometimes I'll splatter a little bit within them, around them. One thing more to say about splatter is that I don't use it just for one part of the painting. Once I use splatter or any other technique that has a particular appearance, you know, it has a look, then I try to balance it throughout the entire composition so it doesn't look like I just used it in that one spot. I might use it negatively here, and then maybe use a little bit of positive splatter on the rock for texture or where the water has splashed up against the dry part of the rock and left little darker spots on the rock. You know, it works itself into all parts of the, of the painting usually. For that downstream part, are you then filling it in more as positive painting and then working around the holes? Yes, in part. 
I have a tendency to let the white water run downstream a lot farther than it actually does. Especially for watercolors, I like vignetted corners. So I often will use a little bit of sideways splatter to kind of direct the eye downstream without spelling everything out. Right, so you really use the white of the paper in these paintings. I do try to, yes. Especially where I have a good excuse for doing so, which is white water. <laughs> then what are you doing in the final bubbles? And actually, and is there something after the bubbles? Or is that sort of the end of the falling water in your mind? You know, it just all depends on what it is you're painting. So what I just explained is the way I would normally handle it. And that probably comes from the pictures that I choose. I have thousands of pictures that I've taken. So when I choose one that really excites me, I then crop it down to get to the part that I feel will make a good composition. I think I usually choose something that has water going out of the picture plane. And then how much for your references are you painting exactly what's there or are they sort of a kickoff of inspiration? Yeah, they're really a jumping off point. There's an expression that I have no idea who to attribute it to, but it is take the best and leave the rest. I use my photos or if I'm painting from life, use that as inspiration. If there's something about it that I don't like or don't feel it's going to contribute to my painting, I either leave it out or I change it. And then I use the principles and elements of design to help me design a pleasing composition. And we get a bunch into Julie's process in her episode, her feature interview, and I'll link to that in the show notes as well. There are a lot of rocks in your streams and just in streams, but what role do rocks play in your river paintings? Oh, they're very important because what the water is doing, whether it's meandering or falling or splashing or whatever it's doing that creates a visual image for a painting, is all dependent on what it's flowing and splashing over, which in my paintings are usually rocks. I'm just simply drawn to rocks. And so I'll do paintings that are just paintings of rocks. But if I can throw in some water, that makes me pretty happy. But they're really critical to most of my rock and water paintings. So I've also studied rocks. You know what they say, be the rock, be the water. <laughs> I think it really helps you to, to actually feel it. So I've sat on the streams and just gazed at them and felt the rocks, listened to the birds. You know, all the experts tell us that we should paint what we know. So that's what I do. I try to know the subject. And then I have to change it a little bit because the rocks that I paint are often rocks that have tumbled around this earth, you know, ever since. Who knows? Depending on their makeup, some of them become very round. A painting full of bowling balls doesn't look very natural, even if that's the way they are in nature. If I have a rock, whether it's in a photo or in front of me, in location, I will make it asymmetrical. Even if it's symmetrical, I will make it asymmetrical in my painting. And even if it's round, I will give it some angularity in terms of that outside contour. So if it has a round edge, I'll probably shave a little bit of the roundness off just to give it more of a rockiness. So we deal with a lot of symbolism when we paint. And round shapes tend to symbolize soft. 
I have seen some wonderful paintings of round rocks, but if I try that, it just, they don't feel rocky to me. So I give them some angularity just to make them feel hard and rocky. Could you walk us through how you, how do you paint a rock? So once I've got it drawn? Once you've got it drawn. It usually involves several rocks. I will usually paint the entire rock a light value. Now, if I've got nothing but rocks in my painting, I might leave the sunstruck parts just white paper. But if I'm painting a stream that has a lot of white water, I don't leave much white on the rocks because I don't want the white to overpower the white in the white water. So that said, I usually paint the rock a light color, maybe use a little bit of dry brush so the brush skips across some of the surface of the rock in the light where the sun is shining. So there is a little bit of white paper because in watercolor, we do, do love to see white paper. And then as I continue, I might start modeling the rock by putting the darker values in as I see them. But at some point, that rock will dry and then I will go back and add more or deeper values to model the rock to get it to turn away from the light the way I want it to. And then the last is probably going to be to put on the dark, wet part of the rock in. And the way I have people approach rocks in class, I'll have them paint the whole rock a light value, let it dry, and then add the subsequently darker planes of the rock. Because what I have seen a lot of people do in class, they'll paint all the planes of the rock separately. And then all those planes don't really tie together into looking like they all belong to the same rock. But I usually don't paint one rock. I'll have rocks in front of rocks. The way to make them have depth is to leave the tops of the rocks light and paint the bottom of the rock darker. And if there's a rock in front of a big boulder, I'll paint the boulder down to the top of the rock that's in front. And if there's a whole bunch of rocks in front, they'll all have that same theme. The tops will be lighter than what's behind it. And when I look at my pictures that I've taken, that's pretty much what I've chosen to take pictures of is rocks with the sun shining down on top and a lot of times with them kind of a backlighting so that makes it easier to understand why the side of the rock would be darker. I imagine it might be tricky for artists to figure out how to transition between the rock and the water at the base of the rock. How does that transition work? Well, if it's white water, you'll probably want a definite value change between the rock and the white water. So it's the edge of that white water shape. From there up is where the, you know, that's where the rock begins. If it's still water, the transition is that little reflective glimmer of light where the water hits the rock. Right, so be really aware of the kind of water and then the effect in paint that you'll use to sort of tell that water story, but in the rock. All of this said, when I paint, I'm really looking at the subject. And it doesn't mean I won't change it if I don't like what I see, but I really look very carefully to see what's happening. And usually the picture has a lot more information to give me than I have to give to the painting. So observation is really the key. Oh, there's so many keys. <laughs> That's not the key. There's, there's all sorts of keys. <laughs> yeah, one of 35 keys. When you're working on a painting, do you paint the rocks before the water or do you paint the rocks after the water? 
because of what is happening in the water is dependent on what it's splashing and flowing over, I usually do start by painting the rocks. Now that doesn't mean that I'll paint every single rock in the picture first and then go to the water. Let's say if I'm painting a rock in one section of the painting, I'll begin by painting the rock and then before I'm done and moving on to another section of the painting, then I'll move down and put some of the rock colors in the water or lose an edge between the rock and the water because I do like lost edges. I've really tried to train myself to do lost edges because they do enhance the loose look of a painting. So I will lose the rock edge and the water edge while the rock is still wet, oftentimes. Well, you just mentioned that you'll use some of the rock color in the water around it. So often we think of water as blue, but your paintings of water are quite colorful. So how do you approach the color piece of it? Well, in all my paintings, regardless of the subject matter, I usually use color as value. For example, that means that I might have a scene in front of me that's just all green. And a lot of times it's just all kind of green gray, which doesn't appeal to me. So I will use the correct or let's say appropriate values but using whatever color scheme I feel like. So my water usually has purples and pink and maybe a little blue, a little this, a little that. But as long as it's got the correct values, then you can get away with all sorts of color schemes. That's a really liberating idea that you're not actually paying attention necessarily to the color locally. You're paying attention to the value. And if you nail that, you can really have something really colorful that still reads like a river. Correct. So that doesn't mean you can let color uh, harmony go by the wayside. You still have to have a color scheme and probably dominance of warm over cool or vice versa. So you still have to be thinking about color, but it's not the same as trying to mix the color that you see in front of you. We've been talking about falling water, and we're going to move into still water. Thinking about still water, we run into reflections. How do reflections work in clear water? In general, the reflection is going to be a mirror image as long as the water is still. If the water is, you know, moving, depending on how much movement there is in the water, it can become kind of a funhouse type of a reflection. But the axis of that reflection is still going to be centered in the mirror image below what is doing the reflecting. For example, I have seen paintings where there's a tree that's growing out at an angle from the bank, and someone will simply extend the reflection to follow the same angle, the same direction. The reflection has to come back in a mirror image of that angle. What's happening from a color standpoint in reflections? Is the color a perfect mirror image of the object itself, or are there shifts that happen in the color? The way I paint them, I paint the reflection less intense in color, more neutralized, and less intense in value, more neutralized. So, for example, if you have a white pole sticking out of the water, the reflection will, won't be as white. And if it's a black pole, it wouldn't be as black. If it's a gray, it would probably be about the same. So that's kind of my rule of thumb. 
There have been times, though, when I've taken reflection photos out in nature where you look at the photo and the reflection in your photograph is more intense than what the camera has captured in the trees, etc., that are being reflected. I don't know if that is just an artifact of the photographic process, because I was so blown away by the color and the reflection when I was standing there that I wasn't being very analytical. So that's a question I really don't have an exact answer for. Now, if I were doing a painting that was about the reflections, maybe I would paint the reflections more intense. But I, I really don't do that. I usually have the reflections just as kind of a, an adjunct or a, something to complement what's going on in the main part of the scene. Right, because it's, it's about the hierarchy of interest, and you want the subject to be more interesting than the reflection for how you work. But another artist may decide that they actually want the reflection to be more interesting, and then they adjust accordingly with color. Exactly. Still thinking about clear water, how do shadows work in clear water? Well, shadows will not fall on the surface of clear water. The shadow is going to fall upon the first solid particles or shapes that it hits. You know, I had been telling people that for a long time. And then, I don't know, several years ago, I was sitting looking out at a lake and there was a boathouse. And it appeared that the shadows were falling on the surface of the water. And the water was relatively clear. So I thought, oh my goodness, I've been telling people the wrong thing. So I took a series of pictures and I analyzed them later. And the shadow was falling on the water lilies that were on the surface of the water. So I have this picture. I isolated the parts of the surface of the water that were in the shadow area that didn't have any water lilies, and they were the same value as the water out in full sun. For some reason, I was seeing the shadow on the water lilies, and I couldn't see the depth to see where the shadow was hitting the bottom of that lake. I also think that that example speaks so beautifully to why water is endlessly fun to paint, but also complicated because, especially as a beginner, but even as like a very advanced water painter, there's so much inputted information coming in that changes because it's water and light that it can be really hard to, like our brain wants us to just decide and be done, but to like really look at something and like you were saying, really analyze what's going on because you it sounds like like you'll be constantly surprised by what is actually going on. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. And another point regarding shadows. So if the water is muddy, then the shadow will fall on the particles in the water that create some solids in the water. And then sometimes the water is just maybe not that muddy. Maybe it's just cloudy. And then you'll see the shadows more dispersed looking, but they still are falling on the solids that are within the water. But then sometimes you'll see, I guess, the base of objects sometimes are seen darker, like where the shoreline hits. And then on rocks, there seems to be like this darker line. What is that? What's actually happening there? Now, the water line 
If you understand this and incorporate it into your paintings, it will really help you make your water paintings look wet. So where the water has lapped up against the rock, the rock is, is darker. So there's often this band of dark along the bottom of the rock. And if the water's moving a lot, there'll be more dark rock. If it's splattering, there could be dark splatters where the rock is wet. So that same dark value is often reflected down into the water underneath, right at the edge between the wet rock and the reflection of the wet rock. There's a little gleam of light where the water has bumped up against the edge of the rock. And of course, it forms that little meniscus, that little curve as it, I guess, surface tension, but it curves up, forming a different plane that is reflecting light back to our eye. So if you can get that dark rock, the wet part of the rock, and then its reflection, and then that little bit of light that's gleaming right between those two, that can really help your painting look like the water is actually wet. So again, apply and adapt. If I'm painting something and I don't see it, I might just hint at it. And I've got one picture that I didn't Photoshop. It's just really a straight, even line of reflected light between those two optics. And I wouldn't paint it that way. I would paint it much more roughly, not smoothly, because even if you see it in nature, it doesn't mean it's going to translate well to your painting. So sometimes I will leave that reflection with a negative painting. On rare occasions, I might mask it out, but I'm very careful not to make it too big or too stiff looking. So what actually works really well is to paint the wet rock and its reflection at the same time and then scratch that little reflection out with the tip of an X-Acto blade later because it'll kind of leave a rough scratchy mark rather than too smooth a mark. What happens from a reflection and shadow standpoint in white water? A reflection usually is not seen on white water. I think it's because white water is made up of, you know, millions of little spheres. So we don't really see reflection on white water, but you do see shadow falling across white water. And clear water is just the opposite. So shadow falls on white water, but not clear water. Reflection is on clear water or still water, I should say, not white water. It, it sounds like it can be really useful just to spend some time with photos. So like on scene too, but spend some time with photos just being curious about and naming this is a reflection and then naming what you see happening. And this is a shadow and naming what you see happening, just to get familiar with the complexities of seeing. You know, all of these things we know because your brain is picking up on all this information as we live. But when it comes to painting, we forget that we know things. We don't really know what we know. And all the obstacles that are set in front of us just by the act of painting drive that other information out. So when it's called your attention, uh, oh, yeah, I knew that. Why didn't I see that before? <laughs> Stuff like that. There's a lot going on in water. Do you paint everything you see? Or how do you decide what to put in and what to leave out? And how important is that? I never try to put in everything I see. So I would say that 
with water, there are so many different aspects to think about that I usually choose maybe two, movement and reflection, or I don't try to put every single aspect in. So here's an example. And I took the picture. It was a beautiful spot with a cliff and a, a stream. And it was fall and everything was gorgeous. And it's a beautiful picture. But you look at the picture, there is reflection. There is the clarity of the water where you can see the objects beneath the surface. There's shadow. There wasn't even that much movement to the water, but there were so many things going on. If I tried to paint all those, it would not only confuse me, but it would confuse the viewer. So I usually just choose the things that, to me, are telling the story. Do you think that that's a challenge that newer painters try to put too much in? They try to put it all in? I think we try to be a camera, and we're not a camera. I am not a camera. I don't want to be a camera. You know, you have to design the way that you want the picture to look. Uh, all we have is a piece of paper or a piece of canvas. We don't have a three-dimensional medium. We have a flat surface and some paint. That's all we can do. So we have to learn how to organize those shapes into a composition that will hopefully tell people who are looking at it how you were feeling about it. It takes vision and skill, and everybody's got the vision. In our mind's eye, we can think back to that hiking trip we took, and you just kind of see in your mind's eye this beautiful painting that you think you can do, and then you start doing it, and it just doesn't come together. It's just, I think it's quantifiable. You can just realize that the vision is one thing, the skills are another thing, and you have to learn the skills. And that they are learnable. They are learnable. But they might take a while. They might. And then, you know, you can have it all in your head, but you have to have the manual dexterity that you have practiced. We all paint so much better in our heads than we do on paper. And I, I'm no exception. I'll think of something. Okay, I, I visualize it. And then from the idea in my head that travels down my arm into the brush and my hand tells the brush what to do, and that darn brush, it doesn't always do what I tell it to do. It behaves itself more and more, but of course that's, you know, it's originating in my head, and finally uh, when it works, it's I've managed to put it all together. Final question, how much drawing do you do onto your paper, and, and what is the goal of the pencil marks that you would put onto your watercolor paper when painting water? My rule of thumb, and it applies to any topic really that I'm painting, is to do a, the amount of drawing that tells me where all the shapes belong. Now I might take it a little bit further than that and do a little scribbling in the shadows, a little gesture type line here and there. But basically I want to know where the shapes, the big shapes are. Now we also have to learn how to paint shapes without having a line because we're not just filling in the lines when we paint. I don't draw every single small shape, but I do try to get the key shapes in there. So we covered a lot. Any final advice you'd give people who are interested in water as a subject? Really just to study it. Now I'm pretty good at painting rocks and splashing water. I'm not that good at reflections. I know about reflections, but I'm not as good at painting them as I am at painting the moving water. 
I think it's because I haven't studied it as much. I haven't painted it as much. I've gone to the favorite thing, which is <laughs> the splashing water and the splashing of the paint. If it's something you want to get better at, you just really need to practice it. We've been discussing water, of course, and all the questions have been directed at water. But I paint everything pretty much the same. Even though I'm not as good at painting reflections as I am painting still water, I still think that the same things apply to the subject matter. I've broken it down into 10 things that you need to study as separately as possible and put all together. One is shape making, drawing with line or shapes made with brush strokes. Two is learn to organize and design those shapes into a composition. Three is learn your basic watercolor materials and how they work in concert, all the paint is the paper. Four is value. You need to learn to see color in terms of value. Five is color theory and color mixing, which is a whole different thing. Process, what comes first, what comes second, what comes third. You really have to think about those in watercolor. Seven is learn to see both positive and negative shape. Eight is manage the water, learn to judge the consistency or the dilution of the paint in relation to the degree of the wet to dry stages of the paper. Nine is brush strokes and techniques, which a lot of people join classes because they want technique. But if you don't know where to put the technique or when to use it, it's not going to do you any good. And then 10 is to simplify. Learn to simplify, which is really number one, but it has to be number 10 because <laughs> we can't, you can't fit all the horses into the barn door all at once. <laughs> well, then actually, that does bring up another question. You paint in watercolor, acrylic, and oil. So, how different is your approach to water when you're painting water when you're dealing with one of the opaque mediums like oil and acrylic? Well, the white water would be a positive painting technique rather than negative. But all the other stuff pretty much applies. I mean, the uh, way you apply the paint is different, but to me, paint is paint. And you have to learn to see the shapes and learn how the particular medium that you're using works and practice, practice, practice. <laughs> you can find more about Julie Gilbert Pollard at her website, juliegilbertpollard.com, and on Facebook and Instagram, and we'll link to everything in the show notes. Thank you so much for being with us today, Julie. Thank you, Kelly. As usual, it was fun and made me use my brain to think about how to say these things rather than just paint them. Thank you for joining me this week on the podcast. For show notes, head to learntopaintpodcast.com slash podcast slash episode 51. While you're there, sign up for the newsletter list and get each new episode sent straight to your inbox. And if you like the show, hit like or subscribe on your listening app. If you've got a few more minutes to spare, leave a review of the show. This lets iTunes know that it should suggest the show to others, and that makes a big difference. Speaking of big, big differences, thank you to everyone supporting the show through the Podcast Art Club. An extra shiny thank you to High Gloss supporters Andrew Atterbury, Debbie and Brian Miller, Rihanna DeRold, Janet Wheeler, Nancy Bryant, Catherine Ordway, and Pam Lyle. Happy painting!